All right, we've got a great episode of Side Retired today. It'll be Dylan, Nico, and Henry as always. And today we're going to be joined by a Hall of Fame writer. He is the first person to not vote for Adrian Beltre in the cycle. So Henry, let's get right into this. All right, we have a great episode here of Side Retired today. It is Dylan Campione, Nico Fernandez, and Henry Kalani as always. And once again this year, we are really enthused to be joined by Bill Ballou, a baseball Hall of Fame voter, also covers the Boston Red Sox. So Mr. Ballou, thanks again so much for joining us this year, and we really appreciate you hopping on with us today. Glad to talk with you. I get I get lots of email uh, about things, some of it not very nice. Uh, you guys may disagree, but you're always nice, and so that's uh, th- that makes it a lot more pleasant. Absolutely. So I know, yeah, Nico, if you want to get into Nico always asks a big question here at the beginning. So. Yeah. so we're obviously, we have interviewed a lot of like Hall of Fame voters, and some of them I disagree with, some of them I agree with. The first question I always like to ask is, how do you view the Hall of Fame? What's your philosophy as you go into voting that makes you construct your ballot? It's It's very simple. And it's it has stuck with me through all of my years of Hall of Fame voting, and I, I it's it's I'm a hard marker, what you call a hard <laughs> marker. When I was seven, 1959, uh, Ted Williams was, was nearing the end of his career, second to the last year of his career, and my dad took me into Fenway Park. He said, "I want you to be able to tell your kids you saw Ted Williams play," and to me, you have to be that level of player. And there are not many players like that. I understand it's a very 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 high plateau a very high level but that's essentially how i base uh my hall of fame votes on it's not just about numbers uh achievements accomplishments it's definitely intangible it's definitely subjective but that's the way that i start looking at the process absolutely and i guess looking into looking at that as well the two players that you did vote for on this year's ballot alex rodriguez and manny ramirez if you want to take us through the thought process you had as to why you wanted to put those two on your ballot and you believe they did reach that level of excellence they did uh certainly i mean uh rodriguez uh has been such a good player for so long and he was a guy that when he came to the plate and it happened fairly early in his career he was a great player right from the beginning uh, so was Nomar Garcia-Para. Not everybody goes long enough as a great player to be in the Hall of Fame. Rodriguez certainly did. Uh, he was just one of those guys uh, that when uh, he got near the end of his career, I mean, you wanted to personally say you saw him play. You probably want your kids to say you saw him play. He was that kind of player. Same with Manny Ramirez. Ramirez was a, an incredible hitter, one of the greatest right-handed hitters of all time. And it's somewhat unfair. Uh, you know, people will talk about Omar Vizquel. Well, yeah, a great player. Nobody buys a ticket to watch somebody catch ground balls. They don't. It's all about hitting. Uh, that is that is what brings people to the ballpark. And Ramirez was one of those hitters that brought people to the ballpark. A tremendous, tremendous hit. The, obviously, the issue with Ramirez and Rodriguez was uh, steroid use. Uh, PEDs, whatever you want to call them. We call them steroids. It makes it, it, makes it simple. Uh, they not only, I mean, they're not suspected. It was proven. They, they failed tests. And baseball has uh, a penalty, a sanctions, uh, and they served out those sanctions. It's not the death penalty. You know, by failing a PED test does not disqualify you from Hall of Fame consideration. There's also a screening committee of other writers 
uh, much smarter than I am, that decide <laughs> who goes on the ballot. If that committee says you're okay, then that impresses me because those the people that are on the screening committee are very, very uh, educated and highly respected uh, baseball writers and, and observers. So uh, I, I'm okay with that. I really am. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, like in your voting history, you voted for Barry Bonds, for Roger Clemens. So would you say that, and, if you, and you've talked about intangibles a little bit, um, so would you say that what these guys do for the game, you definitely value more than whatever hit the seasons that they've been proven to be taking steroids in. Um, would you say that the, what their impact matters a lot more than that? Well, their impact does, as I said, I mean, they, you know, baseball uh, decides, I mean, Pete Rose is not eligible. I couldn't vote for him anyway. He'd be a veterans committee guy. Pete Rose committed a crime that was so great that, that baseball has disqualified him. For any from anything, and these guys committed crimes too, uh, but they're not disqualified. It's sort of like, uh, if I can make an analogy, breaking the speed limit, going five miles an hour over the speed limit is different than going ninety-five, and you know it's a it's a different punishment, a different sanction. And these guys, you know, have served out their sanctions, and uh, obviously, uh, what they did over the long run uh, is it was tremendous in, in terms of uh, of. Uh, promoting the game and creating interest for the game. It's always interesting when players come back from PED suspensions. Generally speaking, the home fans give them a standing ovation. They don't really care about that. Visiting fans will boo them. When they go to bar, they boo them. But uh, home fans give them a standing ovation. They're glad to have them back, and that's more important than the, the rest of it. They've done their time. They've done their crime, and it, it goes to that point. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually completely agree with your philosophy how you see it. I remember when I was like in high school uh Chris Carter he votes for the NFL Hall of Fame and how he explained how he votes was if I'm saying the story of my sport do I have to include that player yeah. and that's how I've always kind of like chosen to like go through it and one of the things which I was surprised that you didn't vote for was Sammy Sosa because I feel like one of the key great moments of eras of baseball was like that race of 98 with McGuire and Sosa and I feel like that era of the 90s, the big guys for me were your Clemenses, your Bonds, and then it's Sosa and McGuire, in my opinion. I want to know how you delineate between like your Clemens and your Bonds, and then like Sosa, maybe like a tier below. Sosa what is Sosa is a very interesting in a couple of ways. Sosa is a very interesting character. Uh, and you know, there are people that don't like that I voted, I vote for guys who have proven or even suspected of using steroids, which Sosa was. But Sosa was proven to have used a cork bat which is cheating. So why is that okay, but the steroids aren't? It does the exact same thing. It, it generates more power for the batter. Sosa was as great a player as he was, and he was, for some reason, he had the misfortune of always being the second best. He was the second best at everything. And in pro sports, especially major league sports, it's all about being number one. And Sosa never got to that being that he was the vice president. You know, that it turns <laughs> out he was he was he was, you know, uh, Charles Curtis or, or, or Alban Barkley. Those guys, great, great uh, Americans, but never the president. And Sosa was never the number one guy. It was unfortunate. But that's, you know, when you when you deal with intangibles like I do, that's intangible that I took into consideration. He was never the, the number one guy. And then I guess another one of those questions that one of the guys that you did not include on your ballot and you were actually the. First voter to get public revealed as not voting for Adrian Beltre this year. Was that just sort of a, he wasn't that upper echelon or what separated Beltre exactly, from? Exactly. Guys? And it was, I got a lot, I talked to a lot of people on Adrian Beltre because I did see him in Boston for one year and, and he was an exciting player on an unexciting team. That was not his fault. Uh, but he just didn't pass a threshold of, of me saying, boy, I, I, you know, 
Adrian Beltre is retiring soon. I got to go see him play. Uh, and that's and, and that's unfortunate. That is intangible. And I can't numerically defend that, except that that, that was just my subjective, subjective look at it, is that he was that kind of a player who was really good and helped, you know, helped uh, you know, the game and all that. But he was never that that guy that you had to see play. So, oh, he retired and I missed him. Boy, this my life is ruined. He wasn't that kind of guy. And I, but I got more grief, uh, email grief. Uh, from the Adrian Beltre selection than anything else <laughs> I've done in the last since actually since Mariana Rivera. So there's a lot of strong emotion out there, and I respect those opinions. They're good opinions. Uh, I got a very uh, uh, a very cogent letter, an email from a guy in Delaware. I've never, I was hoping it was Biden, but you know, I've never, gotten, <laughs> I've, I've, I've never gotten anything. Delaware is is a wonderful state, but nothing happens there. Uh, it, it's funny. I mean, name a major league player from Delaware. I dare you. Can't. Like 12 people. You, can't. you can't do it. Uh, the Red Sox had a guy named Brandon Walter this year who was a, a left-handed pitcher, p- pitching in Worcester some, a good guy. I met him. And I looked at Brandon Walter was the first Delaware native to play for the Res- Red Sox since 1901. Uh, <laughs> so it was interesting to get this. And he said, uh, and the the, the, the uh, correspondence, you know, does it really diminish the Ted Williamses and the Henry Aarons if someone like Adrian Beltre is in the Hall of Fame? Well, it does. Uh, it shouldn't, but it does. And the example of that would be that in 1939, the first class for the Hall of Fame, only five guys get it. There were probably 50 players who deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. But you don't want to put 50 guys in at the same time. It does diminish it for everybody else. It just becomes a, a group thing. And so, yeah, it, it does. And I know I'm a hard marker, harder than most. And I suffer for it for, with the correspondence I get. Uh, one guy uh, emailed me and said, well, uh, I appreciate your courage in admitting that you're stupid. Well, okay. That's, you know, thanks thanks so much for that. Uh, but at least it's something. But yeah, Adrian Beltre, that's not an easy thing. It really isn't. He was a terrific player for a long time and for several teams. But he, he didn't he didn't you know quite get up to that threshold of Manny Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez and Roger Clemens and and, and, and Bonds and, and guys like Ted Williams, Babe Ruth. I didn't vote for Babe Ruth. I'm not that old. Uh, or Ted <laughs> Williams. But he never got to that level. And there are guys out there that, are going to get to that level, I think. Bryce Hyman, Bryce, Bryce Harper, one of those guys. Otani, if his career extends, is one of those. Trout is one of those guys. Uh, so there are guys out there, but not many, and there shouldn't be many. Yeah, I just I had a question about um, just a guy like Scott Rowland, right? Rowland gets in. Does that impact your your viewing? Right? Does that it does comparing Scott Rowland to Adrian Beltre? Right? Rowland gets in. Does that impact your view of like? Well, maybe he should be considered because of how he stacks up against other Hall of Fame, like people who are admitted, or does it is every is every induction independent of all the others? It, it, that is every independent every induction is independent. I don't compare uh, because I didn't vote for you know I'm not a Scott Rowland guy. Um, I will say, and I, and a lot of people do think that that's valid that that you should compare. Uh, the problem is, where do you start the comparisons? Uh, one thing, the guys who are in, you know, a, a great example is Harold Baines, who shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, but he was put in by the Veterans Committee, which is 12 voters. That's a lot different than the 400 voters who get you in, you know, the BBWAA. And so that's a lower standard. But uh, a lot of fans don't understand that. And they say, oh, if, you, if he's as good as Harold Baines, then he should be in. Well, yeah, I didn't vote for Harold Baines. <laughs> Uh, I had you know, I had this problem. I did the census three years ago. It was three summers ago. And in Massachusetts, we have a, a town census. They mail you a form. Where do you live? All this stuff every single year. 
And uh, the, the national census is done every 10 years. And I go to someone, oh, we already did the census. Well, when? Oh, in January. Well, no, no, that's a different census. You know, we got we to start from scratch here. This is different. And that is my philosophy. I, I look at every uh, class entirely independent of the last class uh, or previous classes. Yeah. In terms of comparing guys. Comparing can be tough because, uh, I mean, it's like you want to compare Omar Vizquel with Ozzy Smith. Oh, he can do that. Ozzy Smith was a show. And that, I mean, he was he was an incredibly great defensive player. Vizquel was steady and good. Ozzy Smith was an athlete, a show in himself, uh, and he's a different guy than Omar Vizquel. He really is. You may not be able to prove that numerically, but he really was a different kind of guy. Yeah, absolutely. And circling back a little, I'm shocked that the Red Sox fans asking this and not the Yankee fan Henry, but a guy like Mariano. So, like for me personally, um, I give a little bit of credit to you. Talked about being the best like when we were touching on Sammy Sosa, for me, I kind of also look at it as like being the best at your position for guys. For example, one of my guys I've been opining to be a um, a hall of famer, Billy Wagner. I think that Billy Wagner is the greatest left-handed reliever of all time. So going off of that, does Mariano, do you think get credit? Obviously he's not, you don't go to see a closing pitcher, but the fact that he was the greatest closer of all time, led in every statistical category for closers. Does that get any credit, even though it's like, again, according to you, you're not going to see a closer play, but Mariano is the best and will be the greatest at that position. Well, good point. You bring up my previous experience with this, in which uh, uh, I was going to be the America's stupidest person when I said I wasn't going to vote for him. And the thing is, I, I didn't say I wasn't, I was not going to vote for anybody that year because had I voted had I cast a ballot and Rivera was not on it, he would not have been a unanimous selection. Now, if you don't cast a ballot, that doesn't count. And I went, oh, I mean, Rivera was different than Wagner in this. And this is what I finally uh, came. He is the only closer, I believe, in which you would have gone to see just to say you saw him before his career. Billy Wagner, who was a good yeah. guy for the Red Sox a bit. Billy Wagner is a great story. You know, he fell out of the fell out of a tree when he was a kid, broke his right arm and learned it through 100 miles now left-handed. That's Hall of Fame of, uh, of medicine. <laughs> but it's not Hall of Fame of baseball. He was one of many very, very good closers. Rivera was extremely unique in that, and I finally came around to thinking of that. He was. I also don't agree that all positions are created equal. Look at football. The long snapper is not as important as the quarterback is. All positions are not created equal. Shortstops and a field catcher, there are positions that are more important in the overall picture than others. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, closer, uh, generally speaking, closers are okay, but Rivera was an exception. He was one of those guys who you would go to see just to say you saw him play before he retired, John Pitch. I love it. But then you did sort of mention that there was that initial fear of, am I going to be the only guy that keeps him from being unanimous? So when casting that ballot for Adrian Belcher this year, and I think it's Ryan Thibodeau on Twitter does a good job of keeping track, and there have been around 150 ballots so far. Yeah. There are only two of you that have not voted for Adrian Belcher so far. So was there a little fear when you were first submitting that, uh-oh, what if I'm the only guy that doesn't vote for Beltre. No, it was. I've been through that before. I survived. Um, <laughs> and, uh, no, it, it, it just wasn't because in my mind, I had no trouble uh, in, in not comparing Beltre's impact uh, uh, to fan impact as I was to uh, Rivera's. I really was. Rivera, Rivera was hard for me because my, until, until Rivera came along, my guidelines were you had to be one of those buy a ticket guys but you also had to be good for a long time. I mean, for five years, Nomar Garcia Parra was a buy-a-ticket guy, all right? But he wasn't a Hall of Famer because his career didn't last long. Rivera was the only guy I ever met where he was a buy-a-ticket guy, but really his accomplishments, because he was a closer, I didn't think, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things about closers that you worry about. I mean, 
the way pitching is used today, uh, you try to get the starter out before the third time around the batting order. How many times in his career did Rivera face a guy three times? He did. He never did. He never did. It's it's a di- it's a different plateau entirely of that. I mean, uh, we asked Terry Francona about momentum in baseball. He his answer was like, "Momentum is tomorrow's starting pitcher. It's not tomorrow's relief pitcher. It's tomorrow's starting pitcher." So relievers are definitely a different position, and and and, and they're getting more and more important uh, as time goes on. Uh, but at this point in time, I'm not willing to compare. Adrian Beltre to Mariano Rivera. I'm not. And I know I've talked to a couple other writers who don't make their votes public who weren't going to vote for him too. So he won't be, it won't be just two of us, I don't think. <laughs> I love it. You did just mention though, by the way, that a guy like Terry Francona, now I'm fascinated that we just went down that rabbit hole of how can a manager be Hall of Fame worthy? Because I don't think there's that many guys that you go to see a manager do his thing, but there's definitely some managers that probably deserve some recognition for their career noteworthiness. They are, and of course, we don't vote for managers. We only vote for players. That's a veterans yeah. committee thing. And there's a sort of a separate wing of the Hall of Fame uh, for that. And uh, uh, there, but you're right, there aren't many uh, like that. The, the one that immediately comes to mind would be someone like Casey Stengel, who trans, you know, he he, he transformed everything over a span of 40 years. Uh, and Casey Stengel, I don't know if you guys know about Casey Stengel. Casey Stengel's actually his first job as a manager was in Worcester, you know, 12 miles from where I live. He was a minor league manager. And he managed the Boston Braves when they were terrible. Uh, and Warren Spawn was one of his pitchers. And he managed the Yankees, who were the greatest dynasty of all time. And then he managed the New York Mets, the 40, who were 40 and 120, the worst team in history. And Warren Spawn was on that team. And so Warren Spawn said, I knew Casey Stengel before and after he was a genius. And that's how that's, that's what it is with managers. You know, it all depends on, on who your players are. Uh, but Stengel was such a such a a star a media star he had such so many great teams he had so many good ideas about how to manage that he probably did bring people into the ballpark he certainly brought Mets fans into the ballpark in 1962 because nobody wanted to watch that team play <laughs> uh, but yeah but there, there aren't many you're right there aren't many uh and uh, I'm glad we don't have to vote for them because it's very very hard to gauge managerial success because look at Joe Torre great with the Yankees not so great with his other teams and uh, you know managers can make a little difference football I think head coaches make a lot of difference but I think in, in especially in baseball managers can make an, a difference between winning and losing a little bit but not they can't resurrect a bad team uh, or they can't ruin a good team uh, so they are uh, interesting characters but you're right the hall of fame uh, is a reach for a lot of them yeah, the more you talk about your process, the more it makes me never want to vote for the Hall of Fame ever <laughs> because it just seems so complicated. Because as you're saying all this, like the one guy that comes to my mind currently is Otani because Otani, in my mind, I feel like in the short span that he's been in baseball, he has done more for the game than I believe any person in the last decade, 15 years. I think that he's probably the most influential player since probably Derek Jeter. And I'm saying that when he's only been in the league five years, how do you view a guy like that where Otani obviously has his tenure, his tenure contract coming up now, doesn't have the same stretch that he had in the last five years? Is he still a Hall of Famer? Because because of those five years, every single person needed to see him. And it seems for like the next three, four, five, it's going to be the same way. No, five years is not enough. And that's also subjective. Uh, it, it, like I said with Rivera, it's got to be excellence and longevity to some extent. And he doesn't have a longevity. Now, I also, I I, I, get, I went through this with uh, Hideki Matsui, who I didn't vote for for Rookie of the Year when he was when he was playing his first year. And, and that's because of my hockey background. Covering hockey, 
you know, hockey wound up having rookies of the year were 33-year-old Russians who had been playing pro hockey. Well, they're not, they're not really rookies. And I think Japanese baseball uh, has been better than people give it credit for. And so I considered Matsui's years in, in, in Japan to be, if not full major league, then enough. So it disqualified him. And I, I would take Otani's uh, years in Japan into consideration as well. So at this point in time, I'm, I would be very, I only have five years left to vote. Once you get too old and I'm getting near that point, they throw you out. I mean, they figure that you have dementia and they're probably not going to be wrong. Uh, but, you know, I would given if if we project, project Otani's career down the road. Yes, he would be a guy I would vote for. Yes. I, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to get too like inside baseball in the future. But I'm talking about a guy who found a lot of success in Japan and then found even more success in the MLB. Ichiro Suzuki is up next year. Would you say that the impact Ichiro had would make it would make a good case for the hall of fame would you consider it or or would you say that he wasn't the type of buy the ticket guy as we've talked about on the pod well oh, i mean geez i hate to scoop myself that's the worst thing in newspapers is you, you, you scoop it. I, I i plan to vote for each row i do yeah he was that kind of guy he really was uh he was a must-see baseball player for a lot of reasons but yeah he was he to me he is he, he, clearly a hall of fame player i don't have to think about that one yeah I love it. Absolutely. Well, we've talked about this whole sort of a player you wanted to see in order to make them a Hall of Famer. So I have to ask the question because I'm surprised none of the other guys have. Who was that guy for you growing up or whether it was when you were covering the Red Sox that, hey, that's the guy I have to go see, made me fall in love with baseball and obviously stuck with it for a couple of years. Well, I mean, you know, Ted Williams was the first one. I was I was really young then. After that, it uh, it really became uh, Kelly Stremski, uh, who was uh uh, uh, he's a guy, when you look at him, he played till he was 43, 42, played forever and ever. He went through the entire cycle of Red Sox, uh, terrible Red Sox teams, uh, you know, in the early 60s. He had, I still think, and I love baseball history, and I've, I've studied a lot. In 1967, I think he had the, base, the best individual offensive season a player's ever had, and that stands for something. Uh, he was a great postseason player. He had longevity. Uh, he was a great defensive player. Not a good base runner, but that's not the end of the world. Uh, but yes, he, he he really was the guy that uh, that uh, I looked at when I was growing up and, and became a baseball fan. Yeah. And like shifting over, I guess, away for a little bit from the Hall of Fame voting because I have to get some of my Red Sox questions in. <laughs> How are you feeling about the Red Sox this year? Because it's now the new year. My birthdays, it's six days after my birthday. And I thought my birthday present was going to be some hope for the Red Sox season. And I'm still not very hopeful. <laughs> I, I think the Red Sox um, are uh, right now, as you look at the Red Sox are a mediocre team, which they were last year. And you know, the Red Sox, no, the Red Sox weren't terrible last year. The worst thing about the Red Sox, they were dull. That's even worse than terrible, dull. I remember some bad Red Sox teams that had, had you know, wacky characters like Gene Conley and Pumpsy Green getting off the bus in New York City to take a leak and not getting back on and one of them wound up in Israel. Uh, that Now, that's interesting stuff, okay? Uh, the Red Sox don't have guys like that anymore. I think they're trying to get away from it because they don't like the controversy. But yeah, they appear to be, to me, to be a mediocre team. And uh, it's interesting as I, and people ask about that. You know, as they cover the Worcester Red Sox, a triple-A team, uh, and you start to see some, some good younger guys come in. Uh, the problem with the Red Sox has been that they haven't been willing to spend money. A, they haven't spent it wisely. Their farm system has not been productive. And I really think that they have to improve their farm system to get a good base 
layer of players to build around. It's hard to rebuild your roster every single year. It's tough to do that. And I don't think they have enough uh, you know, good guys on the roster right now that will stay with them for three, four, five, six years because they're homegrown players. They have to do better with the farm system. They really do. I'm just going to circle around quickly because I've never heard that story before. You said that a Red Sox player got off a bus and ended up in Israel. <laughs> I, I I have to, I have I'm to know sorry, the story. I'm sorry. He did. He, he tried to get to Israel. He couldn't, he, he couldn't get, he didn't have his passport. I think it was Gene Conley is <laughs> a fascinating guy. Gene Conley's one of the few players who played <laughs> professional major league, major league basketball. He played for the Celtics the same time he's playing for the Red Sox. That was his <laughs> off season job playing for the Celtics and winning world championships. He was six, seven, uh, good hitting, a good hitting uh, pitcher, a uh, pitch for the Boston Braves and the Boston Red Sox. It was a hot day in, I think it was 1961. Pumpsy Green, of course, was the first black player to play for the Red Sox. And it was a hot day. And uh, if you've been, my wife and I were in New York City for the ball drop. Uh, so we know what it's like down there. And it was a hot day. They're on the bus. And the bus is not going anywhere. And they both said, well, they had to go to the bathroom. So they got off the bus to go. And by the time they got done, the bus, the traffic jam was over. They were gone. And, and uh, Gene Conley actually wound up going to the airport to try to fly to Israel. He didn't didn't make it. He tried to fly to Israel. But it's, it's, it would have been a better story if he did. But, he, you know, that's good enough that he tried to get to Israel from, uh, from you know, uh, here here in the afternoon playing for the Red Sox. And here at night, I'm heading to Jerusalem. Uh, a little different, but fun to write about and read about. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, I think that's... Look that one up online. You'll see the, the Gene Conley <laughs> thing and you get the, the, the backstory on that. But that's what the Red Sox were like in those days. St- weird stuff happened. It really did. They had a first baseman named Dick Stewart, Dr. Strangeglove, who uh, the first baseman generally have pretty good fielding percentages because they were involved. And his fielding average was like 90, 90%. He made more errors. You couldn't believe how bad he was uh, defensively. <laughs> but he hit 40 home runs, and that's all they cared about back then. Uh, but they've had a lot of fascinating characters through the years. Uh, not so many uh, in, in more recent years. Um, yeah, I, I think I miss that part of it. <laughs> but it's so perfectly. Like, that's the one thing that, like, this year and I think the year before also, like, it's a dull team. Like, there's no one that excites me. Like, is there anyone, obviously, like, there's some people now, as, like, this year kind of got into, like, September and the end of the year. Like, for me personally, Tristan Casas excites me because he's more of a South Florida guy. I'm personally from Miami, so I got yeah. to see him in high school. Are there any other guys, again, you said that you covered the Worcester Red um, Sox. Anyone that kind of looks at, you see that you, excites you? Raffaella. Raffaella. So Dan, so Dan Raffaella. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a, I'm glad you like Casas. I, ca- I covered Casas at Worcester. He's a terrific guy. Knows baseball history. He's very thoughtful. Uh, you know, I, I really hope that he succeeds. You know, I, I like him uh, as, as a uh, defensive player and a potential hitter. Uh, Raphael, I, mean, I remember I wrote this only, you know, half-heartedly. Raphael is so fast and so good defensively in the outfield. You could try a two-man outfield and a five-man infield. I mean, you could. I mean, there's no you, you you have a limit on where the infield is, but you can have a fifth outfield. That's a, that's not against the rules. Put him behind second base. Um, you can do that. But that's how fast he is and how good he is defensively. He's really uh, has a chance to be a terrific, terrific player. Fast, uh, good hitter, some power, uh, excellent defensively. He he really has a chance to play be a terrific player. So you should keep your eye on Raphael. He's got a lot of potential. So that's you know he's on the way up. They're a shortstop. Hamilton really really fast is a is a uh, a lot of stolen bases. Has to learn to get on base a little better, make better contact. Uh, if he does, he's going to be a very dynamic uh, base runner and, and and speed guy for the Red Sox, and that would help. And he's he's fun to watch. He really is. Well, I think that you just mentioned it. One thing I did want to ask since the last time that you were on the show with us that 
there are a couple of weird new rules in baseball. We've got a clock now in the game. We've got the infield regulations. We've got pickoff regulations. So just wanted to get a sense of what is your feeling on these? Do you like them good for the game or a little interesting? I like two of them. I don't like the, uh, I don't like the, the infield alignment one. Uh, to me, that'd be like changing the size of the net in, in hockey or raising or lowering the basket in basketball. It, it's, it, it's so much part of the game. The managers should be able to put their players where they want to put the players. And then it's on the players to figure out a way to beat it. I mean, when I was growing up, every college team in America ran the wishbone offense. It was awful. It, uh, same play every time. And, you know, coaches finally figured out a way to, to, to deal with the wishbone. And I think as time goes on, if time could go on, I think that batters should figure out a way to, to uh, uh, if not beat the shift, uh, deal with the shift. The speed of game things, I mean, you know, players say this is new. Games when I started watching regularly was two and a half hours. This is not new. This is this is going back to where it used to be. Uh, what happened is that uh, pitchers would get to the point where uh, they would just try to get the, the they would bore the hitter to death. They wouldn't throw the ball. They bore him to death, and that's not in the spirit of the game. So the pitch clock is excellent. Same thing with pickoffs. I mean, how many times in, in my years I see someone throw to first base with David Ortiz over there? He's not going <laughs> to steal. You know, he's not. You just you're just trying to slow the game down. He's not going to steal stuff like that. Is is it was an abuse of the power you had to throw the first base. It, it, that's all that was. So yes, that's a good rule to get rid of that. I'm not sure the bigger bases make a lot of difference. Uh, although, if you ever if you ever seen the replays, do you guys remember the 2004 uh, playoffs? Yankees Red Sox. Dave Roberts was safe at second by about an inch and a half. And I you know, I, I wonder you know with, with plays that close if that's that would make a difference over the long haul. There are more stolen bases now. That could be because of the pickoff rule. You know it, it, it's it's interconnected. But I do like two of those three rules. Yes, I like it. I know one guy that's really happy that pickoffs are gone is John Lester, even though he's not playing anymore. Definitely could not <laughs> throw a pickoff to save his life. But <laughs> the Red Sox had a pitcher named Matt Young uh, back in the late uh, early '91. He started. Matt Young was the most unfortunate pitcher ever to play baseball. Uh, he is the only guy I know of who once struck out for an inning, which means somebody got on base. You struck him up, but you somebody got on base and pitched a no-hitter and lost. The combination of that, he tried to do that, and he did that. And he was another guy that could not throw the ball. He couldn't throw the ball, period. I mean, and it was so bad that the other team actually, like, took pity on him. they wouldn't do anything to make him throw because you know what, what if that's me someday uh it was unbelievable he was like that as well Matt Young except he was nowhere near as good as John Lester was <laughs> no it's definitely fun but we really and appreciate a, a bit of trivia here too is I covered the game he pitched no hitter and it was in Cleveland and you know he only had to pitch the eight innings and baseball for some reason has declared that's not a legitimate no hitter which is ridiculous because it was a legitimate complete game it's you know either it's, yeah. it's, it can't be one or it's got to be either either and the catcher in that game for the Red Sox was John Flaherty who's now a Yankees broadcaster yeah. and if you count that as a no hitter which John Flaherty is the only catcher in baseball history to catch a no hitter in his major league debut so it's, wow. it's, it's, it's a great side thing yeah uh it, it, so that, that was a fascinating game yeah i don't like that yeah that's terrible I mean, again, like you said, if it's a complete game, it has right. to be yeah. yeah, it's either it's neither or both. It can't be one exactly. or the other. That's a phony rule. That, that, that's a phony thing. <laughs> they, they, you know, uh, hitched up. Uh, that's just that's the nature of baseball. I mean, Matt Young after the game said uh, said, "Well, I I would have pitched against him in the bottom of the ninth, but they didn't want to hit." Well, okay, <laughs> that's fine. Man. He was there. He was ready to go. Uh, but the, you know that it, it, it's crazy. That should be a no hitter, and hopefully someday somebody will come to their senses and and, and declare. <laughs> it. 
I love it. Nico, wasn't that the Marlins? I think it was Henderson Alvarez that was like pitched all nine innings, but the Marlins hadn't yeah. won yet. And then all of a sudden he's in the on deck circle and gets the no hitter. And it's like, do, do yeah. we celebrate the win or do we go pile on <laughs> Henderson or what do we do? I mean, no hitters are interesting. I mean, uh, Pedro, Pedro Martinez pitched a perfect game plus, but it didn't count because they, 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 they had, uh, I once covered in spring training a, a perfect game in which nine different Red Sox pitchers got the best <laughs> one, nine different pitchers. And Martinez was one of them. I finally had my perfect game, he said. Uh, the best of all time is uh, uh, Harvey Haddock's in 1959. You should look this one up. Harvey Haddock's 1959 against the, the Braves in Milwaukee, he was pitching for the Pirates, threw 12 and a third perfect innings and then lost the perfect game in the game. Get 37 straight batters out to start the game. Unbelievable how that happened. And he, he gets nothing for it. He got a loss. That's all he got out <laughs> was a loss. This, the beauty of baseball it is the most unfair game in the world. And this is why I hate replay. You shouldn't make it fair. That dulls it. I mean, baseball is the only sport I know of that rewards failure. You swing at a strike three that's so bad that you can't hit it and the catcher can't catch it, and you get to go to first base. It, it's it's bizarre, but baseball is the only sport that rewards failure. That's what makes it so interesting. And that's what makes these discussions so interesting because there are so many angles and nuances to them. I love it. And this is just the beauty of baseball right here. We could name like a random player and you have a story for it. We need to get you on the podcast more often. We love hearing all these great stories. You should say my hockey stories. <laughs> oh, I love it. My Islanders are doing okay right now. We'll see what happens there. But well, uh... The Worcester team is the Islanders double uh, A farm team. Uh, Absolutely. In the from Bridgeport and a couple of guys there. It's interesting seeing the guys, you know, go back and forth uh, a couple of guys there, but yeah, they, they have the Islanders colors and, and, and all of that stuff. And, uh, and they're very uh, loyal to the Islanders. Uh, Bridgeport has treated them well through the years. And so uh, uh, they're loyal. It's, it's a, it's a good affiliation geographically too, because it's an easy drive from Worcester down to Bridgeport when they have to make player moves. Absolutely. I know that's always the fun thing with the Mets when they had their AAA in Las Vegas and now they have it in Syracuse. So that have that team, close by that way you can call the guy up if you need them versus when we had our triple a in las vegas it was like yeah. you're not getting a guy there if you need him and it's good for the players too because they know that they have a chance to go up uh you know otherwise they wouldn't if they were in las vegas so you know they, it, it keeps them on their toes the uh syracuse mets and the worcester red sox are the only team and i think in the international league which that has the, t the same name as their parent club the mets and the red sox otherwise they're all they're all different you know different names and they have the they have a the same, the Mets colors and the Red Sox colors. It's almost like watching a uh, Boston and, and the New York when they play. And for some reason, Syracuse has not been a great team recently. For some reason, Syracuse annihilates Worcester. We don't know why that is, <laughs> but they just they they they're always really good against against the Worcester Red Sox. They have been. This is three going on three years now. I love it. Well, this has been a blast today. We really appreciate you hopping on the show with us. Looking forward to having you back on again real soon, hopefully before the next Hall of Fame discussion, because I know we'd love to hear some more Red Sox stories. I know Nico is eating these all up and will be telling them to all of his Red Sox friends from now and forever in the future. But this has been a blast getting to talk to you today so far. Good. Thanks for having me on. And uh, you guys uh, enjoy the rest of the, uh, uh, well, you're still in school. Are you all in school? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, enjoy the rest of the school year. Right? <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. So for Dylan Campione, Nico Fernandez, and Henry Kalani, as well as Bill Ballou, until the next time, the side is retired.